From Sora Schools, it's Sora Learning Lab, a show where we dive into the world of learning research and innovative pedagogy. Through interviews with education researchers, advocates, and innovators, we'll explore the ideas and trends behind the future of learning. Esther Wojcicki is the co-founder of Tract, a peer-to-peer learning platform where kids ages 8 to 14 watch videos created by inspiring and ambitious teenagers. Esther has written two books, one on parenting called How to Raise Successful People, and one on pedagogy called Moonshots in Education. She is a very thoughtful person and has the resume to back up her philosophy. Her three daughters have achieved tremendous professional success. One is now the CEO of YouTube, the other the CEO of 23andMe, and the last, a leading researcher currently at UCSF. And, as a former high school teacher, she has a long career in education, journalism, and technology, racking up multiple teaching awards in the process. Esther, thanks so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah. So the first thing I usually like to ask our guests is just tell us a little bit about your journey, particularly what brought you to the world of education. Why is this something that you think is important for you to spend your time working on? Well, so the main reason that I decided to be an educator is because I realized at the age of 10 that the more you know about the world, the better your life is going to be. And it's going to be safer as well as more enriching. So can you imagine a 10-year-old deciding that? Well, that's true. If you read my book, you'll see the whole story. But basically, I spent my teenage years in the library. For most people, you might think, oh my God, that was really bookwormy and boring for her. But I'll tell you, it was pretty exciting because there's a lot of books in there. And um, I was a favored nonfiction. Those were the books that I primarily like to read. And I met a lot of people in the library, a lot. So don't overlook the library. It's a good place to find friends. And then I realized for myself that the only way I was going to get out of the living situation I was in as a child, which was basically poverty level, was through education. And it worked for me. Um, I mean, it was a struggle. It wasn't perfect because, you know, you have to do a lot of things. You have to sacrifice a lot of things so that in the future you're going to be better. A lot of people don't like to sacrifice for the future. But honestly, if you're careful and do it, then your future will be better. And so I went to UC Berkeley with that attitude that I was actually going to make my life better by getting a college education. Um, It was tough because I was a scholarship student and I didn't have any money and um, life was just was hard, but it worked. And so I'm always very interested in having as many people as possible um, follow that same journey. That's wonderful. Wonderful story. Um, If you don't mind, we can jump straight we'll get to tracked and all your work now of course but i'd love if you'll indulge me just to talk a little bit about your um your parenting philosophies especially around your your book um how to raise successful people which i found fascinating um from my read of it your parenting philosophy is very centered around the notion of trust compassion autonomy and i think this is very aligned with the the flavor of progressive education that we deeply believe in 
at Sora. So I'd be really interested to hear just how your parenting philosophy influenced your pedagogy and perhaps vice versa. So when my three daughters were born, I actually, for me, it was kind of a field day because I could experiment on them. Sorry to say, they were little guinea pigs. I mean, I was experimenting on educational philosophies. I wasn't doing anything terrible. And so I decided that I was going to make them as independent as possible, as early as possible. And, you know, people don't think about making their children independent. It's kind of funny, but they don't. But I did, and I wanted them to feel comfortable in the world they were in. And so, therefore, I felt that if they had some control and understanding of their environment, they would be happier and feel more empowered. And I think uh, that worked out. Um, I taught them all how to swim very early because we had a swimming pool. And very early is at the age of 12 months. And I'm not alone. Just check online. You'll see lots of babies are swimming. So I wasn't the only parent doing that. Ahead of your time. And uh, they all learned to read early thanks to Sesame Street. They watched, There was no, you know, there weren't other programs at that time. So there wasn't a lot of choice. So Sesame Street worked really well and they learned how to read. And um, that was pretty early. And then they, you know, whatever they were interested in, I promoted it. They wanted to ride a bike, so I'm like, sure, you guys can ride bikes, I'll get you a bike. And um, my goal was to make them feel comfortable in their own environment and also have skills to cope if they went down the street to play with the neighbor or something like that. I, I just wanted them to be independent. Turns out that that's a really good philosophy. You know, I this was an experiment on my part. It was not something that I had read about anywhere. And uh, so I did it. It worked. They seemed to be really happy little girls. Um, then I went off to school. I When they were, um, the last one was in kindergarten, I went back to teaching. And... Um, I, I realized it was not on the first day of school, but it was after a year or so of struggling with the system that the school district makes you do, that I realized, God, those kids, they don't like just sitting there listening to me all the time either. I mean, what a, how boring, you know, and they don't like reading that textbook and then taking a test on Friday. That's a, crazy. So um, I revolutionized what I was doing. I never asked anybody. I just like, this is the way it's going to be. I brought in newspapers. I actually, have you ever seen those free newspapers they have in the stands? Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, they probably wondered how many people were reading their newspaper because, you know, I would take 30. <laughs> and it was, and my students loved it. They loved reading the newspaper. I was like, of course you should read the newspaper. You're writing for a newspaper. If you don't read it, how are you going to write for it? So that worked out really well. Kids loved it. I changed the program around so that it was more peer-to-peer, project-based. Um, every part of the program was peer-to-peer, project-based. And, um, and then, without trying to do it, my program started to grow. I mean, it grew from 20 kids, what I started with, to by, you know, I don't know, six or seven years later, there were 80 kids that had signed up for the program. It kept growing. I was really excited. 
And then in the year 1999, I, I had the audacity, of course, to say, God, we need another publication. The newspaper is good, but it's not enough. We have too many kids. So then I started a magazine. And I remember that the administration said to me, a magazine? Really? High schools don't have magazines. What is this all about? Anyway, not to be deterred by their frosty reception, um, we did a magazine. And then we submitted it to Columbia Scholastic Press Association, and we won a first place award. Wow. I was like, oh, my God, are you kidding? That was like the first year. And so after that, of course, the administration said, of course you can hire another teacher. Of course this is a great idea. <laughs> you know, We supported it from the beginning, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we supported it right away, yeah. But it was more because, you know, all these school districts, they love all these awards. So if you want to get them to do something, look around to see if there's an award of some kind that you can... <laughs> look for and perhaps you can enter and win so that was the beginning of the journalism program the whole structure of it was based around multiple magazines because every two years after that I started another magazine why did I do that? Well, the program just kept growing and more and more kids. So I had to figure out something for them to do. And so we have today, we have a news magazine, arts and entertainment, sports magazine, um, foreign affairs magazine. I mean, we have everything. Photography magazine. And the ideas for these magazines came from the students. This is what they wanted to do. Um, and, you know, it's, it's great that maybe I had some input, but, you know, you have to remember, people, people like to do things or they are passionate about things that they conceptualize themselves, they come up with themselves. And, I mean, I can just think about the difference between, you know, living in a rented apartment versus living in an apartment you own yourself. You know, you take much better care of the one you own. You do all kinds of great things to upgrade it. You work on it all the time. But it's the same thing. If you own the publication, if it belongs to the students, they feel that ownership and they do really well. They produce. So, um, again, this was an accidental discovery um, that just worked out. So that's that's... Part of the part of my journey story. There's a lot more to that, which of course you can get if you read my book, How to Raise Successful People. <laughs> I recommend everyone reads it. It was um, it was wonderful. Um, that reminds me of an of an anecdote, but I'll, I'll save that from the book, which I'll save um, for a second. But I will say. Everything you're saying is, as I led with, super aligned with how many progressive educators think, um, but hasn't really made its way into more traditional programs. Like this buy-in, the importance of buy-in, and you know, for students um, in their learning process, I think is just blatantly obvious for the exact reason you said. Right? You can't force people to care about something. You can't force people to learn something. Learning and caring is a decision that happens in someone's head, 
right? So if we don't start from that point, how are we ever going to make any progress, right? We can't, uh, I say you have to force people to make them care about something. You can do that two ways here, or you, you have to have someone care about something, do that two ways. You can either align it with something they're currently interested in, or you can threaten them, right? <laughs> Those are like the two choices. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, that's true. So you have the carrot theory, you know, and the punishment right. theory. And so the school system everywhere, unfortunately, seems to be based on the punishment uh-huh. theory. You know, if you don't do it, I'm going to get you, you know, get a bad grade, you know, tell your parents about it, the, you won't get in the school you want, all that stuff. There's the carrot theory, which is like you and try to encourage them to want to do something that they care about. So that's the latter is my way of thinking. You know, you want kids to want to do it. Because otherwise they can just sit there in your class, look like they're paying attention, and daydreaming about what they're going to do next weekend. That was me, yep. <laughs> All throughout my years of education. <laughs> yeah, I can, a lot of kids do it. It's just, I, I just think the school system needs to rethink what they're doing. And... You know, this is the 21st century. We need people that are innovative, creative, think independently. And you don't get that if you teach them how to follow instructions all the time. Right, right. I think there's a tough, uh, it's a tough circumstance for schools to take a stand in because in many ways they're handicapped by the parenting at home or like the types of students that are coming through their doors, right? If someone who hasn't experienced this this level of self-direction in their home or this level of support from their parents, it's really tough for a school, in my opinion, it's really tough for the school to make up the difference. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Uh, how much of a kid's outcomes, if you will, do you think are determined by like the parenting and versus school? Because you've written about, about both topics. <laughs> so I think a lot is determined by the parenting and determined by the parenting early on in the first five years, first 10 years. But my theory is that you can really change that and have an impact on the, in the teenage years, provided that you give kids alternatives and, and allow them some choice. And um, the main choice is doing what you want to do and believing in yourself. It's just really hard when kids are always, I mean, told what to do. Just look at a typical teenager's schedule. It's like period one through seven. And you just doing, going through those periods one after another after another. Then after school, and you're supposed to have some free time, but oh no, you have to go to soccer because, you know, if you don't play a sport, you might not get into college. And then after that, you have to do your homework. And then, you know, sometime in there, you're supposed to eat. Also, talk to your friends, live a lot. It's hard. It's really tough. So I, my theory is if we can make some part of the school day into a part of the time when kids are doing what they want to do, that would make a big difference. I love that. And it's so funny when we go to these education conferences and we speak to, to fellow educators um, and they highlight problems like, you know, kids, well, they would say in their language, they're 
locus of control is consistently externalizing or something like that. But what they're really saying is kids don't feel in control of their own lives. And it's absurd that this is a mystery to them, in my opinion. Right? Just look at 12 to 14 perhaps hours of, of their day are teacher or adult led, I should say. How are we creating people who feel in control of their own lives when they objectively are not? <laughs> Well, so it's gotten worse in the last 20 years. And the reason I think it's gotten worse is because of technology. You can micromanage your kids much more effectively now than you ever could before. You can see where they are. That You can see the grades they got in the class that day. You know, as a teacher, I was required to post the grades every day. And they went home to the parents. And all teachers have the same requirement. So, you know, the kid has, there's no privacy. You know, back 20 or 30 years ago, if you got a D on a math test, you don't have to tell your parents. Now, if you get a D on a math test, you come in the door and they know you got the D. Right. So your privacy is invaded. It's not the world's greatest system for kids. That's powerful and sad. <laughs> so I actually never did that. I was one of those outlier teachers. They wanted me to give my students grades. I'm not getting grades every week. It's like <laughs> I gave all my students P, pass. They're like, that's not <laughs> acceptable. I was like, well, in this class it is. And because they, yeah, because how can I determine their grade then, you know, because they're just learning. They make mistakes, of course. I gave grades when they were supposed to be given at the end of the quarter and the end of the semester. I have a few not super aligned questions with our current thread, but something something I'm very curious about. Um, so on this thread of parenting, I particularly, this is the anecdote I alluded to earlier, the, um, your story of your daughter, Anne, who came back from college feeling aimless, you know, she wanted to come back and be a babysitter. That would not fly in really any homes, <laughs> really like in most homes, I should say. But you embraced it. You know, you had confidence that she'd, you know, land on her feet. Do you think that advice is, of course, it looks right in retrospect, right? <laughs> Your daughter's wildly successful. But do you think that advice is applicable to a family whose kid perhaps sits in a basement playing video games for 12 hours a day? Um, so my th theory and what I did with Anne is I said, okay, you don't really know what you want to do. You want to be a babysitter after all that, you know, majoring molecular biophysics. That was maybe we, <laughs> that's kind of crazy. But if that's what you want to do, you should do it. But I had a limit. You know, it was a time limit that after a while they then have to pay rent. They then have to participate in the family and, you know, do something to pull their own weight. And so it was not you can play video games, you know, for the next three months. It was she was actually earning money as a babysitter. She was doing helping other people. Um, and so my theory was you have to do something that is helping the world be a better place. And I don't think that video gaming, unfortunately, does not have that um, reputation. It's it's just for you to have fun. So, yeah, I would I would qualify and say they can do whatever they want as long as they, you know, after a while, pay the rent, pay their expenses, and then also do something that makes the world a better place. And it can be, you know, if they want to go out and be a musician, that's fine because music makes the world better too, you know. Um, I, that's right. I did not push her. 
I didn't push any of my daughters. They all had this after graduation, like, oh, my God, what am I going to do now thing. And, um, yeah, Janet was probably the worst. She's the middle daughter. She After she graduated, she's like... I'm going to South Africa. South Africa? I mean, could you get any farther away from your mother? Um, Gee, maybe China. (laughs) I don't know. Anyway, she went to South Africa. You know, that was the days when they didn't have cell phones. So, like, how am I supposed to know you're okay? Uh, Don't worry, Mom. I'll send you an aerogram. (laughs) Anyway, she went off by herself, and uh, it was pretty tough for me as the mother. But... You know, you, it's, if you don't let your kids be independent and come up with some ideas of their own, I mean, you're squashing all their creativity. You want them to do that. And if it doesn't work out, well, then they will have learned from it. It's, it's, I can't overemphasize how important it is to give kids an opportunity to be who they want to be. But I think a lot of the conflict in most families' brains is around this word successful, right? You use it yourself in the title of your book. They think successful means making a lot of money, or they think it means, you know, getting into a better college than my friend's kids, right? So a lot of it is around, this is the word that's problematic, and they're willing to sacrifice many things to this end. Well, success to me means basically, and the definition in my, in my book really is somebody who is has the support and the ability to follow their dreams and to do what it is that you were hoping to do. Uh, so I never expected my daughters to be CEOs of major companies. Um, the first person to be shocked about that is me. And, you know, I thought I'm an academic. My husband was an academic. I thought that they would all be academics, right? Just like the mother and the father. Or I thought they would do something like that. Um, Maybe be an author or something. I didn't know. I had no idea what they wanted to do. I just wanted to make sure that they could sustain themselves and follow whatever dream it was that they had. And so... From that perspective, my children are very successful because they're, they have followed their dreams. And if you just take a look at Anne in the course of 23andMe, it was not an easy ride. And she made it work. And now she's making it work even more. I mean, they now are working on drug discovery. The question is, like, why do some drugs work well on some people and don't work well on others? Maybe that has something to do with your DNA. It's, it's a very interesting concept to investigate. And um, that's what she's doing. I mean, she's, she's asking questions that people have always thought, but been, been unwilling to voice those questions. Sounds like um, the education system. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like it's, healthcare and education have a lot in common. Totally agree. <laughs> yeah, they really do. So a lot of how kids end up, the outcomes of children are reliant upon their parenting. Of course, everyone knows this. This is somewhat obvious. Um, but in your first chapter of your book, you said that uh, everyone kind of has a decision to make. Are you going to follow your parents' parenting style, you know, just fall in line, or are you going to revolt and forge your own path? 
if you will. So I was curious if you have um, could share with the, the listeners, what do you think makes a person choose the direction they ultimately go down, right? And how, if we're saying that forging their own path is superior in most cases, how can we make people be more mindful of the parenting practices they um, are opting into? It's a great question. So first of all, just so everybody knows, most people, not even most, 99% of the people, you tend to parent the way you were parented. Even if you hated what your parents did, you somehow, this seems to be instinctual for you to parent the same way. So in order to change and be the kind of parent you wish you would have had, you have to put it on the conscious level. And that's why I put the acronym TRICK in my book to help parents remember what's important in parenting. And TRICK stands for trust, respect, independence, collaboration, and kindness. And I say you need to trust and respect your kids. That means listening to them, not necessarily doing everything they want, but at least listening and then giving them as much independence as possible, collaborating with them instead of dictating. Most houses, households, the kids are like told what to do all the time. They're not collaborators. And then treating them with kindness all the time. You know, no matter what, don't have grudges. Don't get overly mad. Okay, so they spilled something that's really important and they ruined the floor or God knows what. So what? You know, you can always get another another physical object, but you can't repair somebody's um, sense of self. So how do you think we encourage people to take this step? Right, to become aware of their parenting biases um, and choose this better path. First of all, step back, think about what happened to you as a child, think about what you wish would have happened to you as a child, keep the trick philosophy in mind, and whenever you're doing something, ask yourself, does this indicate that I'm trusting my child and respecting them? And I'll tell you, all you'd have to do is ask yourself those few questions and you will be a better parent. Because um, you would not do to your kids some of the things that you couldn't stand that happened to you. And, um, you know, because I grew up in a uh, household where the philosophy was spare the rod, spoil the child. That was pos- That was in Vogue. I grew up in Texas. I'm familiar. (laughs) You know what that is. And so I did not want that for my children. And so I had to be very, very careful about it because my instinct was, oh, my God, I know how to solve that problem. Just whack them one. And uh, no, you had to make sure you did not fall into that. So let's start talking about your moonshot pedagogy. Um, It's centered around five pillars. So real world work, leveraging technology, student agency, uh, mastery base, passion building. And you say often, and in the beginning of this conversation, why student journalism is such a great way to create an environment to check all those boxes and build up these 21st century skills. So can you just share with the listeners, uh, you know, shed a little more light on why you think student journalism is such a powerful um, uh, force to do those things? 
So student journalism, first of all, first thing you're doing as a journalist is collecting information. And one thing you need to know is how to collect information, how to talk to people, how to get it off the web, how to, how to find information that is credible. And the second thing you need to know is you need to be able to figure out what's most important in all that information you got. Just those two skills alone will make you into a better person. Most people don't have those skills. I mean, when I started teaching in my beginning journalism classes, one of the things I had kids do was come up with 15 questions that they wanted to ask. Just 15. That's not a lot. And then they had to whittle it down to five. And then they had to ask 20 people they didn't know those questions. Do you know how freaked out they were? Very. <laughs> They're like, Mary. They're like, only one. No, you cannot ask your friend. No, not your grandmother. Sorry. No, you have to ask people you do not know. So that's a really important skill because as adults in life, you have to get along with people you don't know. You know, you're not going to have somebody there holding your hand and saying, let me introduce, you know, so and so. And so that's the first thing. And then, of course, figuring out what's most important. Most people, when, you tell, when they tell you a story, they tell it to you chronologically. I'm not kidding. That's how people think. And I said, but, you know, what if something really important happened at the end, like you found the gold pot of money or whatever? And then it's going to be at the end. And then nobody's going to read that far to get to the end because that is what people do. They skip to the, they just want the beginning. So anyway, you teach them how to find out what's most important. Anyway, it's, it's based on this little who, what, when, where, why, and how. I'm sure you've heard of it. It's journalists use it. Who, what, when, where, why, and how. And you'd have to then within that you have to teach kids which one of those they're called five W's and an H. Uh, which one of those is the most important? And so you know it's a process of sifting through information, being able to gather information, and being able to make a decision. This it these are skills for life. These are skills that you need when you're going shopping, when you're going out to buy a new house for yourself, going out to get a car. You need to know how to do this. And so that's probably one of the reasons. And then with journalism, just look at what is the most influential thing in anybody's life. It is turns out it's not your politicians. They like to think they're the most important, but they're not. It is what your friends think. It's social media that influences all of us. So when kids study journalism, they study the impact of social media, and they're able to distinguish between what is important and what is not. And so that's part of why I taught journalism, and there's more. The other part of it is you cannot put a newspaper out alone. Well, I guess you could if you want to spend a long time doing it. But it forces them to collaborate. They have to learn to work together. And that's what our whole world is about, learning to work together on a common project that you are proud of. 
So that's why I did journalism, newspapers, magazine, television, radio, podcasts, everything connected with media because it was a great project, fun for kids, and it's also great for the community. They all want to know what the kids think, and now there's a way for them to figure it out. And they don't have to go down the street and interview all the neighbor's kids. They can just read the paper that the kids wrote. I love that. So you say media. Media is a great learning context. Can you think of any others that perhaps they're not as great, but other contexts for kids to practice and learn these um, important soft skills and 21st century skills? Yeah, well, there's a lot of them. So, for example, robotics, that's not media, but working together on something connected with tech in one way or another. Um, any kind of a project where you have to do it with somebody is something that teaches the same skills. You're teaching them how to work together collaboratively. And that is some, that's a skill for life. You're also teaching them, or this is what I was teaching them, how to get information that you need quickly online yourself, how to search. And there's a great book called The Joy of Search by Dan Russell. And his title at Google was he was in charge of user happiness. And the reason they gave him that title is you as a user were really happy after you found what you wanted to find online. <laughs> and so it's a great book that helps you search more intelligently. So I also taught search in my classes, how to search intelligently, how to check sources, what's a URL, which URLs come up first, what is search engine optimization, all that stuff. Kids loved it. And it was fun for me. Very relevant to whatever their interests are. Well, now every kid says they want to be a creator, which I think is a wonderful trend. But the question is, how can we get them there? Right. Uh, I was looking recently. Yes, every kid say says they want to be a creator, and there are games like Roblox now that really encourage this metaverse, as they call it. But still, less than three percent of people playing these games are are creators within the games, which is just so abysmally low when you look at how many kids want to be. Right. So how can we help them become creators, empower them to be this? So I'm glad you asked this question. We didn't even plan it. But how can kids be creators? So I started this company called Tract, T-R-A-C-T dot app. And it's by kids for kids. So it's by teenagers for preteens. And it gives kids who are teenagers an opportunity to be creators and to be influencers of younger kids and they do it they can sign up to do it on tract um and after they get really good at it we actually even pay them so it's it's a it's very similar to the youtube creators only with tract you definitely have a educational component you know some of the youtube videos i like mm, i just watched that why did i watch that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but i don't know why i watched that but um, in this case, it's something that can help kids learn project-based learning and can be really an effective tool for collaboration. And all the teenagers can learn creator skills. And we're, we're at the point now where we're getting 
getting ready to introduce it as a possibility for schools to have their own creators that create learning about their own communities. So just keep your eye open on track.app. I love that. I will. I'll continue to. (laughs) I'm curious on a lot of the content on Tract is very interspaced. It doesn't fall in the traditional, you know, Algebra 1, for example, paradigm of scope sequence of a class. So interest-based education seems to be at at the heart of it. So I'm curious how you think interest-based education fits in with, uh, I guess, a holistic or liberal arts education. I guess another way to ask this question is, do you believe that students should be able to experience a purely interest-based and self-directed path? Or are there certain topics that kids need to learn whether whether they'd like to or not? Well, I think there's certain things that kids need to learn whether they like it or not. And that's basically the main thing, I think, are social-emotional skills. You know, it's hard to teach somebody social-emotional skills when they're 30. Um, you can teach them how to add and subtract and do other things like that. But social-emotional skills are tough to teach. So that's why I think they need to learn those in school. And that's part of what tracked is trying to help teach. Um, All these young creators, by being a creator, they're also learning leadership skills. And they're learning how to be a leader in a world that has a lot of diversity and a lot of different ideas. And that is, so I'm not only worried about the user, the kid that's the preteen, but I'm also worried about the teenager. I want to empower those teenagers to be the best they can be and um, and to believe in their own ideas. Um, a lot of kids, are they don't believe in their own ideas, I'm sorry to say. And they're sometimes, hate to say it, afraid. They're taught not to. Yeah, taught not to. And also sometimes ridiculed, you know, you raise your hand in class and make a que- ask a question or make a statement, and then the teacher's like, oh, my God, what kind of question was that? How does that make you feel? It's terrible. I think that happened to me once in my early schooling years, and I went through all of high school and all of college without an- asking a single question. <laughs> I think that's actually true. <laughs> that is so, it's so sad. And I told, I was instructional supervisor for English in Palo Alto, and I said to all the teachers, you know, you just make one statement to a kid that's negative, and it can have an impact on their entire life. Be careful. Don't make negative statements. I mean, we all make mistakes. And so they made a mistake. Big deal. Just let them do it again. And um, so that's, and, and I never said anything about questions, you know, that it, I didn't care what kind of question. You can ask it 10 times. It's okay. Okay. The role of school. I, I have a question coming. <laughs> the role of school, uh, what school should become? What, what school should become? So I, I think that's, I, I've tried to be, tried to change schools for a long time. For like, I've been pushing this for at least 40 years. And um, I've made some changes in the system, but not significant. So my theory is that there's two institutions in the world that are very reluctant to change. Number one is the church. Forget about changing the church. And number two, schools. So what I think about schools, that's where what I try to do with Tract. Let's only change 20% of the time, just 20%. 
For the other 80%, you can continue to do the same thing you've always done. Teach them the same way you want to teach them. But 20% of the time, give them an opportunity to follow projects, ideas of their own. And so if you don't know what to do in 20% time, because I've been talking about it for a long time, there's tracked. It fits into your 20% time. No professional development required. Just open the computer and go on. And people say, what do you mean no, 20, no professional development required? Do you need professional development to use YouTube? <laughs> no. Or TikTok? No. So you don't need any professional development to use Tract either. And it gives kids this opportunity to be independent learners. That's my attempt to sort of influence the system as a whole, to do anything more drastic. Like it sounds like you guys are, you're going to have a school that's actually changing the whole school, the culture. And that's- Yeah, we try to change the, the whole thing. It's a very, it's a moonshot, if you will. <laughs> but it's great. It's great that you're doing that. And I admire you and I, I wish you all the best. But I can tell you the public school system, there's so much, so many constraints and laws and how to tr- pay teachers and how to teachers' rights and student rights and everything. So you, you really cannot do that. If you could wave a magic wand, though, <laughs> and let's say, um, let's say you could turn school into just the journalisms and just the robotics right these sort of these sort of programs being 90 plus percent of the students time would you do that yes yes okay (laughs) so if if i could have more of an impact i would give more than 20 percent of the time just because i don't want to get people upset i would say how about 50 50 you know And um, that could mean things like, you know, allowing kids to come up with their own topics or their own books when they're reading in English. Or, you know, in social studies, how about being able to explore different aspects of history that you personally are interested in, instead of always being told what you have to study. Uh, There's a lot of ways you can do it. And, you know, I'd be happy to help everybody, but in fact, my number one way right now is with Tract because I figure, you know, it's an easy, easy for me to do. It's a simple fix, and it can make a huge impact in the way we teach. Wonderful. Well, we'll we'll stop there. I will ask you one last question. So, if people want to stay up to date with you, your thinking, or just learn more about what you're talking about, um, what can they read, or what websites can they go to to do that? Well, I need to have my own website. Um, I I did have one at track.app, but actually, I'm going to be publishing more stuff on Thrive Global with Ariana Huffington. I like Ariana. She's great. And so I thought I'd just continue to put stuff so that people can look on Thrive Global. They can find information about me and my thoughts. And uh, also, if they just look up my name, there's a lot of blogs and websites and things that I've already done. So they might find that. And don't forget two great books. <laughs> oh, yeah. And all my books. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Esther. It was a very fun conversation. Well, thank you, Garrett. And I'm really happy that you invited me. And I hope all the listeners enjoy my little pearls of wisdom. Thank you for listening to this episode of Soar's Learning Lab. 
Check out our other episodes for more thoughtful conversations with experts on learning, pedagogy, and more.